Thank you for taking the time to listen to today's episode. As you know, the current crisis in Myanmar is extremely concerning, and we appreciate that you're taking the time to stay informed. There is even value in just becoming more aware and helping to inform others. So please consider sharing this episode so that more people may learn about what is happening in the country. It's critical to ensure that this issue remains present in public discourse. But for now, let's get on to the interview itself. Our topic today is one that, uh, like many of the topics we cover on this show, is often overlooked. Uh, Specifically today, we're going to be looking at wood, and even more specifically, teak wood, a highly prized wood for which Myanmar is famous. And I'm joined by not one but two guests today, Timo and and Shirshul, who are going to speak to us about the different elements of the international teak trade and the ways in which this applies to Myanmar and the various underhanded elements that connect the teak trade to many unsavory elements of uh, past and contemporary uh, Myanmar politics and history. So I'm going to uh, start uh, with Shisho uh, and have you introduce yourself for our guests. Hi, uh, I'm I'm Shisho Desgupta. I'm an investigative reporter uh, with the Miami Herald, and I'm based out of uh, Washington D.C. Yeah, hi, it's Timo Schober. I'm also an investigative reporter with Paper Trail Media. We are based in uh, Munich and we're working together with several media outlets such as Der Spiegel and uh, ZDF in Germany, Der Standard in Austria and uh, Tam Media in Switzerland. Okay, thank you. And you've you've both worked on this issue of, of teak, um, but you've both worked uh, slightly slightly differently. If, if I understood correctly, Timo, you focus more on the teak that is transported to the European Union, and Shirsho, you focus more on the teak transported to the United States. Um, how did uh, how, how did you guys start collaborating? Were you collaborating uh, before, or did you happen to be independently working on teak and and find one another? Um, this whole investigation was led by the ICIJ, that's the investigative, uh, the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. That's an NGO based in the US. And um, we came together because uh, I think in total 39 media outlets were cooperating. And um, yeah, in the beginning, there was there was a leak from the Myanmar tax um, department, which has shown that the TIC um, exports both to the US and to the European Union and several other countries are going on despite some sanctions. 
And uh, yeah, so in the beginning, I guess both of us were starting to get into the topic, like um, the teak trading of Myanmar, how important it is for the regime over there. And then we naturally uh, both focus on our reporting uh, areas. So I focused, um, I had a special focus on Germany, but also on the European Union in general. And yeah, sure, sure. Maybe you can tell something about uh, your focus with uh, the US. Yeah, I think uh, for us, you know, obviously, an overall sort of picture of the TIG imports to the US was kind of relevant, but you know, because uh, we cover Florida, the Miami Herald, for us, the uh, what was sort of most uh, important in terms of coverage was uh, the TIG that was entering through Florida's ports and the Florida companies uh, which were uh, sort of involved in this in, in this trade. Interesting. And so uh, I'll continue on uh, with you, Shesho. Um, what, so what can you tell us about uh, Teak? I think our audience is, is sort of aware of the Myanmar context. I think many people would be aware of uh, Teak goods as something that is associated with Myanmar. But um, we're clearly looking at a very global context and a global phenomenon. Why, why is Teak relevant? You know, why do people care? Uh, I, I think so, like, as a wood, it's it's very durable and pliable. It, it is, you know, re- resistant to water. Um, it has a wonderful golden hue. So it's it's used a lot in furniture, but also for uh, making the decks of boats and yachts. And uh, for centuries, it has been considered to be a symbol of affluence. And among the different varieties of teak that you get, I think uh, you get teak in Asia and Africa uh, as well. Uh, uh, so among these varieties, Myanmar teak is generally considered to be the best. Now, this reputation combined with uh, decreasing supplies due to deforestation and a very laborious extraction process from deep in the rainforests uh, of Myanmar uh, and its uh, and some parts of, of Myanmar's neighboring countries uh, sort of combine and make teak a quite expensive luxury product nowadays. But nevertheless, so teak clearly um, is a very sort of highly sought product uh, in the Myanmar context. And I've, I've seen the teak forests myself. I, I travel to the center of the country. Like they're quite large and quite impressive um but you you're saying that there's deforestation how how much of a deforestation are we are we looking at are we are we getting into the territory where this industry is simply not sustainable or is it just uh a temporary sort of over exploitation that can easily be corrected for uh i think uh there 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 are efforts to sort of harvest teak and plantations uh, but, uh, y- you know, which in turn will, you can argue that, you know, over time that will become sustainable because they're just growing it for this product. Uh, but at the same time, if you're talking about old growth teak from the, f- uh, from the forest themselves, uh, that the, the stocks of those trees are dwindling. So, you know, per World Bank's estimates, forests made up, 70% of Myanmar when the country became independent in 1948, but now that figure stands at a little more than 40%. Uh, 
And the country lost a fifth of its forest in just the two decades between 1990 and 2010, according to the UN. So, you know, you, you can imagine it's if, if we're talking about old growth tea growing in forests, uh, you know, it is dwindling. And I, I don't know about what the situation is like in Africa. So can you, so you've used the term uh, old growth, and it's definitely a term that we hear thrown around a lot when we talk about deforestation and environmental concerns. But I'm wondering, like, what's, what, what does old growth in context actually um, mean? And what is it in contrast to? Uh, I think it's basically a forest that, you know, which has sort of attained kind of age as as you if you will without any significant disturbance from humans and human activities and so you know it has its sort of unique ecological and you know uh and features and it's kind of like its own ecosystem in, in a way and so does that have an impact on the wood itself or is it just one of the places where we could get teak from uh, I'm not sure it has an impact on the wood uh, uh, itself uh, in terms of either quality or price. But uh, the the thing is like, you know, even if you're sort of like harvesting teak just for, uh, just for export or for production for like furniture and stuff uh, for manufacturing products, as it were, uh, you, you will be basically clearing land. Uh, which which means, you know, in a country like Myanmar, where, you know, most of the country is under forest cover, that does mean that forests are still getting destroyed. And, you know, as we know, teak obviously takes a long time to grow. These are like big, massive trees. So even harvesting will take years, uh, maybe even decades. So it's not like in the short term, just harvesting is not sustainable in any way. Okay, so let's let's take a historical view uh, because this is something that that I know that we we discussed previously. Um, so the teak industry, as such, uh, goes back quite uh, quite a quite a long time. I think um, we're talking about like two centuries or something along uh, those lines for international uh, demand for Myanmar. Uh, Myanmar teak. So, how how has the industry, the the teak industry and the teak exploitation, evolved? What was it like during uh, the colonial period prior to nineteen forty eight? So, okay, so Myanmar becomes independent from the British in nineteen forty eight, and then w- within like I think around fifteen years, it it comes under a military dictatorship in the early nineteen sixties and. The economy is closed off. Uh, the country again starts being opened up in the 1990s, but the military is still in power, and the businessmen who take charge of the economy are essentially oligarchs tied to the regime. Now, in 2014, Myanmar has its first sort of free elections, and in the next decade, they enjoy a kind of semi-democratic rule. And countries like the U.S. and the EU, they lift a lot of sanctions during this period. But even at this point, the people operating in the timber sector as a whole still have links to the military. 
uh, and some of them have, you know, allegedly also been involved in smuggling and 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 drug running and you know all sorts of illicit activities. Now, since the 1880s, when timber started being logged commercially by Europeans in in Myanmar, this whole industry has been plagued by labor abuses and. You know, as I mentioned, on top of that, the rapacious logging has led to deforestation. Uh, now, you know, sort of fast forward to February 2021, the military orchestrates a coup and seizes power again. And a few months later, the U.S., the EU, and you know, other uh, some other countries start imposing sanctions against individuals and companies which are controlled by the Myanmar military. Uh, this includes the Myanmar Timber Enterprise, or MTE, which is the state firm that de facto controls the timber trade in the country. Uh, now, what the sanctions does, uh, at least from the U.S. perspective, is uh, they make it illegal for Americans to do business with these sanctioned individuals and entities and prohibit any transaction with them in U.S. dollars. Now, since most global with, uh, global business is done via U.S. currency, the measures restrict the finances of the individuals and the entities which have been sanctioned, and the sort of ultimate aim is to freeze them out of the international banking system. Uh, but, you know, in, in terms of what the industry is like, uh, as I said, uh, yeah, there was a Department of Labor study which cited Myanmar's timber sector as extremely prone to labor abuses. Uh, it is, and it always has been sort of overrun with corruption and rife with illegal uh, logging. Uh, I had spoken to Derek Mitchell, who was a former U.S. ambassador to Myanmar, and he said that, you know, doing business in teak basically means you need to know the right people and pay the right people off. Uh Widespread poverty in the country also means that children are sometimes found working in these logging camps and, you know, drug consumption is very high. Uh, there was, a tw I think, a 2020 or 2021 study which says that uh, the drug consumption in some of these camps are so severe that it can shorten life expectancy of children involved in the logging sector. Uh, so, you know, it, it's not like clean industry in any way and it never has been like we are we are talking about this industry now in terms of the coup and sanctions but it's not like uh, things were hunky-dory in the past uh, as well I think uh, Shesha has um, explained that um, pretty well. I just wanted to tell you one um, one number that illustrates um, the loss of the forest in Myanmar. I mean, we had their uh, military governments or and, and elected civilian governments, but if you look uh, on the tree cover, yeah, that Myanmar, you can see that Myanmar has lost since 2001 roughly the size of Switzerland. Mm. Um, according to an, to an NGO. And I think that illustrates uh, pretty well what has been happening there uh, regarding deforestation and uh, illegal logging. I mean, it is it is common sense that especially illegal uh, logging is a huge issue in Myanmar. That's also one of the 
major concerns uh, regarding the legal import, or it has been before the coup, when there have been no sanctions. So um, in some countries of the European Union, uh, for example, in Germany, it has been common sense that a legal import um, that complies with the European trade regulation is not possible because um, the locks cannot be traced and it cannot be said if they have been locked legal or illegally. Um, yeah, that's just something that that I wanted um, to add. And, and um, another aspect uh, why the teak of Myanmar is so precious is that um, there are now alternatives like artificial teak, but yeah, it's common sense that natural teak wood is the best uh, teak wood, for example, for the decking of yachts. Um, and um, yeah, in the industry, it is still very popular and the demand is still very high. And uh, so it is a vital uh, revenue source for the regime. So just just on that, uh, bef before I start breaking down the, the historical element, um, you have both mentioned specifically the application of teak in the decking of yachts. And... Yachts tend to be quite large. I, I would imagine that the decking of a yacht requires a significantly greater amount of teak wood than, you know, applications such as making furniture or, or making small sort of uh, handicrafts. Um, but yachts set off a, a red flag for me. Is is the demand for teak being driven by, let's say, uh, affordable luxury, just nice little trinkets that that normal people might like to have on their coffee table, or is it being driven by the the uh, wealthy elite um, layer in the West who have concerns such as what wood am I going to use for my yacht? Is there a, is there a, a weird sort of socioeconomic um, split here? Yeah, I think we're definitely talking about the demand of luxury yacht uh, because if you compare the amount of teak that you need for a decking of a of a yacht of a Russian oligarch, for example, and compare it to normal furniture, uh, there's a huge def difference that um, everyone can see. So, yeah, I mean, I've visited some trade fairs, I think Shirsho as well. And uh, if you talk to the suppliers there, uh, everyone says yeah, that um, if you're a millionaire, it, it was one conversation that comes to my mind now. I was speaking to a captain uh, on a fair uh, and he was walking on the ship. And uh, actually, it is not allowed to go on the ship on a, on, on a trade fair with shoes because um, they fear that uh, the teak might be demolished by normal shoes. Um, and he was the, the, the captain was telling me that, well, um, if of course you can uh, take um, artificial teak and it's possible, but if you're a millionaire or a billionaire, you want the best. And the best is natural grown teak. And there's still an ex extremely high demand because it's the best product. And um, that's what is driving the demand. This is, I mean, I, I, I've been doing this podcast for a while. This is one of the most unusual and and mind-boggling, let's say, contrasts that that I've been presented with thus far. That we have here massive deforestation of of a a very rare and precious natural resource, and one which is you know, rife with, with, as you've uh, both mentioned, you know, labor abuses and, um, and, and, and hazards and just, uh, well, we'll get into the criminality, but, uh, but definitely underhanded business tactics and sanction busting. And on the other hand, we have yachts, the, the actual 
symbol of opulent wealth and luxury, um, it, it it just seems perverse that it could be possible that that so much sort of destruction and devastation in one country is being driven by something that is so ridiculously niche and exclusive to to the mega wealthy. I, I I'm I'm just having difficulty wrapping my head around this reality. It just it just seems too absurd. Like, I don't know what to say about that. I was genuinely not expecting that. I thought it would be, you know, tables and chairs or something like that. But so uh, yeah. I mean, like, j- just just take take a step back. Uh, you know, you you mentioned tables and chairs, uh, but again, you know, like if you're buying like a pure teak table or a chair or like other furniture, like cupboards and stuff, you're probably like pretty rich. Like even if you're not at the billionaire. Or, or even millionaire level, like even that is pretty expensive. So like you, you're well off. Now, you know, of course, we're talking about luxury yachts, uh, but uh, which is sort of like, you know, the, the pinnacle, uh, as it were. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, in, in Florida, you know, just to like uh, sort of, you know, put, put this in context, in, in Florida, you do have, teak also being used in like smaller boats and smaller yachts Mm. where which may be bought by like people who are like still affluent but not like a millionaire uh but you know like yeah you're you're probably right in saying that you know sort of the demand and the prices is sort of uh, is influenced by the fact that very rich people only want teak as their furniture. They only want teak uh, as decks on their luxury yachts. Uh, in terms of sort of like solid data, uh, you know, once the, these teak products are imported as planks, uh, uh, generally both in the US and the EU. So after the point of in, import, like what happens to these planks, it becomes very hard to trace. So like, it's not like we can say that, yeah, this was converted into tables or boats and stuff. But we've seen that most of this is probably going to boats because the companies which are trading in this uh, in this product, uh, they generally advertise themselves as being suppliers to, uh, you know, big boat and yacht uh, manufacturers interesting i mean that's i i was just not expecting that i'm not gonna lie to you i was just uh, that's very unusual um yeah i mean if you look at it from an economic perspective it's uh, all about the quantity and the revenue you can get i mean uh, just imagine uh, you are doing the furniture and the decking of one huge yacht and it, it's just a huge quantity and of mm-hmm. course a huge revenue because uh, those people are willing to pay high prices so generally mm-hmm. um almost 100 percent of the forest in myanmar are state-owned mm-hmm. and um so they are now owned by the military, of course, and the regime. And um, when the locks get cut, uh, there are some auctions organized by an association called Myanmar Timber Enterprise. Um, MTE is the abbreviation. And um, this is 
this is where the military re regime is getting the money from. So because uh, it is owned by them. And if you want to buy as a private company, I mean, there, of course, there are existing uh, private companies that are dealing with TIG in Myanmar. If you want to deal with the locks, you need to buy it directly from the MTE at these auctions. And um, the problem or kind of a problem is that, for example, in the European Union, and I think in the US, it is the same situation as far as I remember. Um, the MTE, so this association that is doing the auctions and um, organizing the trade, is sanctioned. So this specific uh, entity. Um, and the argument of a lot of traders in Europe is, well, uh, the MTE might be sanctioned, but of course, I do not buy directly from the MTE. But this is not how it works. So uh, they buy it from private companies. Mm. So the lock is being cut in the forest that is stained on, that it gets to the MTE. And then there are some auctions and, they, and it gets bought by private companies. And then those private companies, they uh, resell it. And um, I mean, de facto, it is not impossible to um, comply with the sanctions and with the ongoing trade regulations. But um, so as I have, I have made the experience that some authorities uh, like customs, they are not able to deal with the sanctions because they only look at the MTE. And if it is not uh, coming directly from the MTE and if it's not written in the documents, um, they say, okay, there is no entity, uh, there is no association that is being sanctioned by the European Union, so it's okay. Okay, so so the, once again, opening up a, a, a whole bunch of different um, windows there to to look at. So let's let, let's look at it in in sort of the different dimensions. There's the government slash military component. There's the actual industry of logging uh, antique itself within Myanmar, and then there's the international trade component, and the sanction busting. So. So you're saying that the the actual organizations who are going in and cutting down the wood are owned by the state. They're owned by the government. Is is that in the post 2021 coup world? Does that mean that the teak industry in Myanmar is effectively owned by the military? Yes. Yes. Uh, yes. Definitely. Uh, yeah. So from from sort of the the point of cutting in the forest to the auctions, like every step of the way is, is controlled by the MTE, which is a state firm. So, you know, right now it's being controlled by, by the military. Uh, after the auctions, uh, once they go into sort of private hands, so to speak, uh, you know, they can be, pr they're pro generally processed in like sawmills and stuff. Uh, but we've heard experts say that, firstly, a lot of these sawmills may also be partly owned by the military or owned by people tied or close with the regime. Uh, and, you know, these private companies are also uh, generally tied to the military in some way or, or, or the other. Um, because, you know, again, like, like I'd said, this is a very sort of closed up sector and historically, you know, you had to be politically connected to the regime and, and that has sort of, you know, always been the case. So during the, the NLD government period, the 2015 until the, the coup of 2021, um, was there any attempt made by the government to remove 
um, the the people in positions of ownership and and positions of control within the teak industry who have close personal, family, or financial connections to the military owe their positions to the military and and advocate for the military within the the democratic and industrial um, sort of uh, sectors that uh, that exist within Myanmar. Uh, yes. Uh, so there were some reforms introduced. Some transparency, some steps towards transparency was taken. Uh, you know, there was this uh, document which was created, which sort of maps out the different processes and like the different points at which, uh, you know, you'd, you'd need like paperwork uh, to prove sort of like the chain of custody. Uh, 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 I think that's sort of like the term which is used. Uh, uh, in in the sector, uh, uh, and what it essentially means is it you know like it, there will be some sort of trail, ideally electronic, but if not, but in in the context of Myanmar, it was like a paper trail, which shows that this wood came from this forest and passed through the hands of you know X Y Z entities or people or whatever. Mm. Um, but, uh, this, the, the, the sort of results from these steps were, uh, a, it was minimal because again, uh, this, this was a paper trail. So, you know, things were easy to forge. Uh, and even during this period, you know, some of the heads of like the entities and even like uh empty sections etc were still uh sort of controlled by the people who were like close to the military uh so you know it was still like sort of an ongoing process when the coup happened uh mm -hmm. you know obviously changing and reforming an industry which has existed uh, and operated in a certain way for like more than a hundred years, it, it takes time, right? Mm. And uh, we didn't really have the time to see that. Okay, so so that means as as the coup happens, we still have the industry be carried by momentum and legacy largely in the hands of people who have close personal connections to the military. And who are therefore happy to continue supporting the military through the the revenue that they raise? Is that the case? Uh, yes and no, in the sense that yeah, like not everyone was probably close to the military, but there were some people who were, mm -hmm. and there were also like a lot of actors who were like otherwise kind of corrupt and you know allegedly had their hands dirty. Right, 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 right. Okay, and. So turning now to the actual industry itself, because I think this is a very important point. Like I, I know that we we have to talk about the the trade, the international trade, and the sanctions, um, and and we will. But I, I I don't want to overlook the suffering of the people who are actually working in this industry. Um, you're talking. Both of you have mentioned uh, labor abuses, and specifically uh, among them child labor. What what sort of conditions are we are we talking about? It doesn't appear at first glance. It it's not something that we would associate with with abuse. When we look at the mining industry, 
we understand the conditions in which mining occurs and, and how that could very easily turn abusive. Um, but the logging industry does not, on face value, appear to be an inherently an industry that lends itself to to labor abuses uh, like that. So what what's actually going on in this industry? Uh, I, I don't, honestly, I don't have any sort of first, like I didn't speak to any person mm-hmm. who had like first-hand experience. Uh, but sort of my understanding from speaking to experts is that um, you know, as I as I mentioned, uh, there's a lot of drug consumption in these logging camps. Uh, these logging camps are located very deep in the jungles, and you know these kids sometimes uh, they're not even accompanied by their parents. Uh, they work in these camps months at a time. Uh, they have to operate sort of like heavy machinery to sort of cut down the trees. Uh, so it it this is not like a safe work environment. Mm. Uh, you know, there 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 isn't really much safety equipment, uh, which uh, children or like even adult laborers have in the sector. Uh, but but there is like one thing which we should also sort of take into context is that you know we are sort of looking at it from a kind of you know, Western perspective of labor and human rights, which is fine. But it's not like children are always forced to work in these camps. Uh, There are cases like that, uh, which the U.S. Labor Department cited. But at the same time, like a lot of these children also go willingly because the the whole country is so poor. Mm. Uh, and their villages might be so impoverished that, you know, this is the only way they can, like, earn money uh, for themselves and maybe also their families so that they can survive. Yeah, if I, if I may jump in here, I mean, we have to be clear that reporting on the ground in Myanmar was not possible because yes. um, it would be too, it would have been too dangerous for, regarding those uh, labor conditions, we have to rely on NGOs and, and their reports and uh, what they say is that, uh, for example, children under 18 are participating in very dangerous tasks, so such as using chainsaws to fell trees. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, as, as Shirsho has already mentioned, the drug abuse um, for children that are presented locking campsites. And yeah, there are also, according to the reports, there are there's a high high incidences of injuries and uh, occasional fatalities while they are working in the informal logging sector. But we have to be clear; we have to uh, rely on the reporting of the United Nations or several NGOs because we have not been there to do reporting on the ground because because it would have been too dangerous for for reporters. So the other question I have about these camps, um, Teak, the, the logging is often illegal. Um, In fact, the illegal logging industry is one of the primary black market industries in Myanmar, along with, you know, um, human trafficking, drug trafficking, and weapons trafficking, and and endangered animals and gemstones. And the question is, is is there a danger to these workers? Like, when we talk about illegal logging, are we talking about armed criminal organizations that that come in and and fell trees or steal those trees that have already been cut down? Or are we talking about something that's more 
illegal on a higher administrative level, but is not actually posing a danger to the people on the ground. Uh, I, I I think like uh, it, it's hard to answer. I think it's probably a bit of both uh, mm. because I, I've heard from like people I spoke to in Myanmar who said that, you know, on, on one hand, there is sort of illegal logging, which is then mixed up with the sort of legitimate, uh, you know, official sort of supply chains. At, at some point in the process. Uh, so sort of the illegitimate teak becomes quote-unquote legitimate teak. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, you know, some of these, in, in some areas, you do have, especially right now, you might have the military operating some camps directly. Uh, and, you know, historically, we've also seen instances of uh, some of the armed uh, ethnic ethnic groups who also like operate some logging camps, and then these logs are smuggled into uh, China or India. Mm. Interesting. Okay, so let's then jump to the international component of this. So, what has happened uh, post coup? Obviously, we, we've seen a lot of sanctions coming from the United States and a lot of sanctions coming from the European Union. Um, how have these affected the the teak industry? Has, has the teak industry also been actually targeted by these sanctions or or has it just sort of been left to the side? Yeah, as I have already mentioned, um, in the sanction of the European Union, the MTE, so the Myanmar Timber Enterprise, has been targeted. And if you look at the trade statistics, on the, at the official trade statistics uh, in the EU from, from Eurostat, uh, you can see that the import of uh, teak, and teak from Myanmar especially, has definitely been declining uh, since the sanctions have taken place. But... Um, it had not disappeared yeah, because the demand is still there. Um, what what has actually happened is that some companies in the industry have found uh, new ways to import teak. So there have been in Europe, there have been several cases where one uh, company in the country with uh, poor law enforcement in comparison to other member states of the European Union was importing the teak, uh, sometimes directly from Myanmar, sometimes through third countries, through a, f- a third country state like India or uh, Thailand, etc. And uh, the problem is that when in Europe um, a company is doing that and one, uh, for example, one customs agency is failing to do a proper due diligence and um, the teak is in the European Union, there will be no longer uh, control because when it one once it has entered the European market, there are no longer controls because it is it is free to trade because it's a free trade zone. So I guess um, speaking from a European perspective, uh, the demand is still high. The trading has been declining but um, it is still possible to get teak via Myanmar, although it is becoming more difficult also because, uh, especially after the coup, a lot of authorities um, are aware of, uh, of these schemes and the law enforcement is becoming more strict. 
per our analysis of uh, sort of trade data from the United Nations, uh, Myanmar made at least 400 million in timber in timber exports since the coup. And a fifth of that came from the combined sort of sanction markets of the U.S. and the EU. Uh, in, in terms of like the U.S., uh, you know, we haven't really seen any decline. Uh, so as I said, you know, before 2014, like things were, trade was very restricted anyway. So things only started being uh, oh, oh, being opened up after that. So if we look at sort of trade data from uh, the U.S. Bureau of Economic Analysis, uh, which sort of, you know, uh, records uh, uh, import values from uh, 2013 to 2022, uh, you know, it trade uh, in wood products from Myanmar sort of peaked in 2019 at like 20 million, but in 2021 and 2022, it was like 14.7 million each year. And that is only the sort of second place in, in, in the last 10 years. Uh, so we haven't really seen much of an effect uh, of the sanctions. Uh, nearly 6 million pounds of timber from Myanmar entered the US after the sanctions. Uh, and the total value of this is, you know, currently uh, uh, around $25 million. So you're saying nearly 3 million tons of wood have gone to just the United States alone? Uh, 6 million. You said 6 million pounds. Six, oh, yeah, yeah. Then it's like, uh, but it's metric tons. Uh, I'm yeah, not yeah, sure. Uh, so, I don't. I don't think it's like divided by two. I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, two point two. Uh, it doesn't matter. But you're saying so. You're saying four hundred million dollars since the coup alone, which is yeah in the US and EU combined. Yeah, in the EU. Yeah. Sorry, sorry, uh, sorry. Four hundred. Yeah, four hundred million globally, and twenty percent of that uh, in the US and EU. So, so effectively, in the last two years and uh, what is that? Five months. Uh, approximately $80 million of teak has been transported in violation of sanctions to the United States and to the European Union. Uh, is, is that is that the correct statistic? Yeah, I, we don't know whether it's like a violation proper because, you know, as Timo mentioned, there are ways of getting around the sanctions. But yeah, we can say like after the sanctions were imposed, uh, imposed uh this that is sort of the figure so you're saying that we can take the teak from myanmar if we take that myanmar teak and we transport it to the european union that would be illegal but if we take the teak and we transport it to a third country and from there we transport it to the european union now it can become legal uh, that that sounds exactly like money laundering but with wood um how is that legal? Like, how does that not still count as a sanction busting? No, actually, I have to correct you. Maybe I was um, I was a bit unclear. It is still illegal. So, okay. um, because it's due to the sanction, it is 
not possible to legally import teak. It is just a way, if you, if you get it by a third country, it is just a way to deceive the authorities. And of mm -hmm. course, it is harder to check and it's harder to uh, do a, a proper due diligence uh, control. And uh, it is still illegal. And as I have already said, um, 20 minutes or something like that ago, already in 2017, countries like Germany, Uh, have concluded that it is not possible just because of the European trade regulation to import teak from Myanmar legally because um, the illegal harvesting, the level of illegal harvesting is that high. Um, yeah, it is definitely not legal and it has in some countries been illegal before the sanctions um, and the coup has taken place. Which is very heartening to hear and that's good. But then the question is, Is there anything that can be done to to prevent this? If if we're shipping by a third country, I presume that third country would have to be a country that itself is a teak exporting country. Otherwise, would it not raise eyebrows to say, here is a shipment of teak coming from a country that famously does not have forests? Or are people not investigating at that depth? Yeah, sure. That's uh, India, for example, um, because they have also natural growing teak there. But something that is very popular um, among importers is that they say that, uh, yeah, you're right, it's teak from Myanmar, but it has been locked before the coup. Mm. So it's illegal. If you take three countries, three European countries before the coup, you have three legal opinions. And that, that was the problem because it has mm. not been illegal in Europe Some countries have said, yeah, it is illegal. Some countries said, no, it's still possible. And so um, this is something what is common sense generally in the European Union. It is not possible to trace the locks until they have been locked. So um, it depends a bit on the authority. And um, something that is, yeah, you can say funny or it's uh, pretty crazy, that despite Uh, it is definitely illegal to import teak, or it has been in 2022. The European Union, respectively Eurostat, has official statistics where you can see the teak of Myanmar is still being imported into the EU. So, so they know. They, they know that this is happening. Yes, they do. Is anyone doing anything? Uh, depends on your point of view. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I would say personally from our experience during the research that uh, in some countries the authorities are aware of the problem and they are aware what it means if you have an import from Myanmar. There, but there is one specific case that comes to my mind that um, is a real good example of how authorities are sometimes not able to deal with this issue. So um, in general in Europe, you can, if you want to import a good into the European customs area, you can import it anywhere. So, for example, you're in, in, in Germany and you want to import a good, but you can declare it already in, I don't know, let's say Estonia, because it's the same uh, trade zone. So, um, and that is one of the schemes. Um, there have been actually from 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 Austria company, uh, I hope it does not get too, um, too difficult now. An Austrian company has had um, a subsidiary in Poland and this subsidiary in Poland has ordered teak. And uh, actually, it was imported into the EU in Estonia. And then it passed the whole way to Poland and it went also through Germany. And they had to declare it, but they said, okay, the teak is being brought to Poland. And the German authorities, when they heard about this case, they immediately informed uh, the authorities in Poland. 
but uh, and they also got notice of this but it took so long until they started to examine this uh, particular case that the teak has already been sold to uh, i don't know who so the teak the, the, the authorities they knew that there was an import of teak that was probably illegal and they also make an examination but it was just too late the teak was already sold so we can just because of the four freedoms within the European Union, we can just exploit member states who have uh, sort of less less developed or slower bureaucracies and slower investigative mechanisms and just go into those countries openly committing a crime, but being able to, to move out of that jurisdiction before law enforcement is able to, to do anything. Yeah, exactly. There was also a case in Croatia there has been a company um, that was importing teak and it was kind of the drug dealer. Okay, let's take it back. It was kind of the dealer for several European countries because this particular company that was really importing tons of teak worth uh, millions of euros, it did not even have an own warehouse. So it was not even stored in Croatia. It just got declared in Croatia and then it went directly to Germany, to Italy, etc. And that was how it worked for a long time. There, were, there have been similar cases in Italy, for example. And that's basically the, st the scheme that European companies have been using to um, circumvent sanctions. That's, I mean, that's absurd. With, uh, I'm wondering, is there any way to tell, if you're presented with, with a piece of wood, is there any way to tell, number one, how long ago was this wood cut down? And number two, where did this wood actually come from? Like, is there any scientific examination that we can perform? Yes, yes. That's also something that authorities has been, have been doing in Germany when they were investigating uh, one wholesaler. And... Um, that's actually what they have been doing and it can be it cannot be say with 100 percent, mm -hmm. but like with a very high probability when it has been cut and where it comes from if you declare yeah if you declare wood at the border of the European, this is not being done this is only a special investigation thing so that, that's what i was going to to ask then considering the nature of teak considering the fact that that uh, you know the numbers that the chair has given us indicate that 18 million dollars have been transported to the US and the EU in violation of sanctions just, just in the last two and a half years. Wouldn't that make it important enough to automatically put a freeze on all teak imports into the zone uh, until such time as they can be they can be properly examined? Or, or is that just going to be far too disruptive to pull off? It will definitely not happen that every teak import is going to be examined that way because it's just too expensive. Um, and I think that's a political question. That's something mm -hmm. that someone else needs uh, to answer. Wow, depressing. Um, so let's let's turn then to to Shirsho and and to the United States um, context. Uh, the United States is not uh, like the European Union. The individual states of the U.S. do not have, as far as I know, independent trade relations um, and and independent customs regulations. So how are people uh, getting the teak into the United States? if they can't exploit the same loopholes that the European Union presents? So I think for, for, for the US, it's basically a resource and a problem of priority. So, you know, investigating sanctions violations 
generally falls on the small agency, which is part of the Treasury Department called the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network or FinCEN. Now, we know from like prior reporting about FinCEN that they are understaffed. Now, on top of that, you know, some experts we spoke to, including former FinCEN and Treasury officials, said that the sort of veritable avalanche of sanctions against Russia due to the war in Ukraine is probably sucking up all of their resources right now. Secondly, the volume of trade that the U.S. does with Myanmar is tiny compared to like many other big countries, right? Mm. So enforcing complicated sanctions and investigating violations on products with small trade volumes and whose consumers honestly uh, may be politically influential and, you know, financially well-heeled is probably not priority right now, unfortunately. Having said that, uh, uh, I think around a month ago, the Justice Department did announce a special uh, interagency task force called the Timber Working Group to combat illicit wood trade. Uh, so maybe hope uh, we'll see some action in the near future. Uh, we don't know if any of the wood traders who have imported uh, Myanmar teak to the U.S. after the sanctions, if they've been investigated. Uh, it is possible that that is happening. Uh, uh, Justice Department does not confirm or deny ongoing cases generally. Uh, and there is also the possibility that a special exemption has been granted for these imports. Uh, that has happened before. Uh, but uh, when we reached out to the government, to these companies uh, that we reported on, and to like these the trade associations which represents them, uh, none of them would say whether they had received an exemption. So we just don't know. There is... A lack of clarity on that end and again you know like why uh there is seemingly no action right now is probably because of the war in ukraine honestly mm. okay so with with this in mind uh, due diligence requires that we pose this question and i and i'm I apologize in advance for asking for conjecture on something that you can't possibly be in a position to to say with certainty. But the companies that are importing the the Myanmar teak, mm. uh, just as many companies who import goods in violation of sanctions or in violation of ethics, um, is there a possibility, or what is the likelihood that these companies are simply so large that they're not internally making the connection they're not consciously aware of the fact that they are importing teak from a country where it's unethical to do so or that they're importing teak um in in a way that uh, is is potentially even criminal i mean certainly uh, in the european context what um what timo was saying having a dealer going through poland or going through croatia those people obviously know that they're committing a crime otherwise why would they do that but uh, we, with other commodities we've discussed on this channel, for example, aviation fuel, the possibility lingers that some com companies are, are 
unaware of the impacts that they're having and unaware of the fact that what they're doing is illegal or immoral until it's pointed out to them. Have you had any interaction with companies? Can you speak at all to to whether these companies are aware of what they're doing or whether there's a, just a misunderstanding? Uh, so I've had limited interaction with some of them, uh, with a couple of them, actually. They did not answer too many questions and... Mm-hmm. Most of them did not answer our sort of detailed questions that we'd sent prior to publication. Uh, but uh, it's, I mean, it is possible that they don't know. Uh, but I, I think like at a basic level, uh, you know, I, I obviously I cannot speak to like what they think about it in terms of morals or ethics. But in terms of sort of the, uh, legalese involved in this, uh, they don't think it's illegal because, according to them, they bought the steak before the sanctions were imposed and it was lying around in warehouses, in private hands, uh, 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 and it was only due to sort of supply chain issues due to COVID that they're receiving these shipments now. Uh, but... Uh, having said that, again, you know, the sort of former treasury officials we spoke to who sort of looked at the language of uh, of the sanction or regulation that was issued, uh, they firstly clearly said that, A, the date does not matter. Uh, and that was how this specific sanction was denied, what uh, was designed, sorry. Uh, that the date of purchase would not matter, and secondly, you know, even if it's even if you sort of take for granted that uh, your wood is lying in warehouses, uh, uh, in private hands, uh, outside the purview of the MTE, you know, from just like a due diligence perspective, it's like. Yes, but it's still in Myanmar. It's being exported through the ports of Yangon. And, you know, we don't, some of the terminals we know are controlled by people close to the military or directly uh, controlled by the military. Mm -hmm. It's like, these should be raising red flags. Like, do you really want to risk prosecution? Uh, I like it, it just seems from due diligence perspective it just seems very risky like you know we have to keep in mind that if an entity is found to have violated tres- treasury sanctions there are civil and criminal penalties which can exceed several million dollars and bring up to 20 years of uh prison time and another risk of ignoring sanctions is that violators' properties and assets might be frozen if tre- if the Treasury Department deems it to be related to a prohibit- prohibited transaction. So, you know, it, it just seems from a due diligence perspective too risky. Mm. Uh, but, you know, the wood traders, uh, if, if you ask them, they, they will just say that, uh, you know, we're not doing anything wrong because we bought this would uh, like we placed the uh, order for this would long before the sanctions were imposed fair enough and and i want to check in with timo as well have you had uh, different experiences with different companies or have you been uh, interacting with the same companies shisho has 
Yeah, I had interaction with different companies and um, most of the companies were denying any wrongdoing, especially in Germany and in, in Europe. But um, the case where, which I've been telling some minutes ago, like um, this import to Poland uh, from a, the, the, from the Polish subsidiary of an Austrian very huge uh, wood company, actually when we confronted them, um, they admit the wrongdoing and they said it was their, their own mistake. And it, actually, they said it was the mistake of one of their workers, but um, they admitted everything and uh, said it should not happen again. So at least something. I mean, that's comforting. Um, so then my my question following on from that, uh, and this is, uh, I'll, I'll start with Shisha looking at the US context. Um, what is it that should be done and what is it that could be done? in order to limit this because tens of millions of, I mean, you're saying a $40 million industry since the coup, that's, that's, that's going to buy a lot of bullets. It's going to buy, a, you know, a lot of guns and ultimately it's going to pay for a lot of civilians to be killed. So this is, this is a problem that must be solved. What is it that we can actually do um, starting with the U S context to try and stem this, this trade and therefore stem the flow of money to the military? Uh, okay, so it's not forty million; it's four hundred million. Oh, sorry, sorry, four hundred. Uh, my mistake. Uh, but yeah, I, I think you know, obviously, enforcement and investigation. Uh, like like Timo said, you know, if you sort of route the route, uh, route the your sort of supply chains through several countries, uh, it makes it harder to track, uh, which means that if you have if you have to investigate it properly, you know, it requires more time and resources. So there's that. Um, but, you know, at a basic level, you, as we all know, enforcement can only go so far. I think, you know, advocates uh, that we spoke to, both who are engaged in sort of like the environmental and con conservation fields and also, the pro-democracy uh, activists in Myanmar, you know, all, all of them basically say that, you know, like enforcement, yes, obviously, but we have to sort of raise enough awareness about the issues surrounding this product so that there is like a fall in consumer demand. Uh, mm. Because as, as long as there is a, like a demand on the consumer side, even if you like enforce it stringently, even if you like go for outright bans and stuff, you know there will be ways in which uh, this product is procured. So basically, all we have to do is to get billionaires to start caring about the third world. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Awesome, awesome. That that fills me with so much hope. Um, uh, so, Timo, uh, same question, but from the European perspective, is there anything that we could be doing or should be doing to to stem this this trade? Uh, well, I think it's a pretty hard question. I think um, it is important that the authorities are aware of what an import of Myanmar TIG means. So, like, uh, that this is something that is actively financing a very brutal regime. With uh, human rights abuses, etc., and I guess it would be, uh, especially from a European perspective, it would make more sense to um, 
make a total ban of um, Myanmar teak imports and not only to import uh, the Myanmar timber enterprise. Because in my opinion and in the opinion of uh, a lot of experts, this is not a, a loophole, but um, a lot of companies are trying to use this construction as a loophole. And um, I think it would be just, uh, it would be very clear also for the authorities that it is not possible to import Myanmar teak legally. And I guess this would be something that would be very helpful. But of course, this is something that policymakers need to decide and what we cannot decide. Uh, I, I think, you know, we, we, we spoke about sort of, you know, the story behind the scenes on how teak is produced and the sort of ramifications and effects it has on the workers and the environment. And right now, you know, it, it is uh, 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 financing a very brutal regime, as Timo said. But I think we also need to keep in mind that there are other products like this as well. Um, there are conflict diamonds, there are, you know, gold mining in the Amazon. So, you know, a lot of luxury products that we sort of covet, they do lead to conflict, death, the destruction of an, of the environment. And we should sort of keep in mind uh, uh, that, you know, we are also complicit in like even even if we're not buying teak, we might be complicit in in other ways when we buy these products. Mm. Very true. And uh, Timo, same thing. Is there uh, any final thought you'd like to leave for our audience? Yeah, actually, Shishu has taken my thought. Uh, <laughs> thanks for that. <laughs> no, I just would agree hundred percent with with Shishu and um, just. I would just like to tell anyone, if you're buying a product that uh, has to do something to do with teak, try to look at it where it comes specifically and always keep in mind that if it's natural teak, it is. it might be very likely that it is sourced originally from Myanmar and that this is a revenue for a brutal military junta that is actively uh, shooting down its people. After today's discussion, it should be clear to everyone just how dire the current situation is in Myanmar. We're doing our best to shine a light on the ongoing crisis, and we thank you for taking the time to listen. If you found today's talk of value, please consider passing it along to friends in your network. And please also consider letting them know that there is now a way to give that supports the most vulnerable, and to those who are especially impacted by the military's organized state terror. Any donations given to our nonprofit mission, Better Burma, will go to the vulnerable communities being impacted by the coup. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are being impacted by the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Your donation will go on to support a wide range of humanitarian and media missions, aiding those local communities who need it most. Donations are directed to such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, Families of Deceased Victims, internally displaced person IDP camps, food for impoverished communities, military defection campaigns, undercover journalists, refugee camps, monasteries and nunneries, education initiatives, the purchasing of protective equipment and medical supplies, COVID relief, and more. 
We also make sure that our donation fund supports a diverse range of religious and ethnic groups across the country. We invite you to visit our website to learn more about past projects as well as upcoming needs. You can give a general donation or earmark your contribution to a specific activity or project you would like to support. Perhaps even something you heard about in this very episode. All of this humanitarian work is carried out by our nonprofit mission, Better Burma. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is directed towards this fund. Alternatively, you can also visit the Better Burma website, betterburma.org, and donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause and both websites accept credit card. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we can take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either website for specific links to these respective accounts or email us at info at betterburma.org. That's betterburma, one word, spelled B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A dot org. If you would like to give in another way, please contact us. We also invite you to check out our range of handicrafts that are sourced from vulnerable artisan communities across Myanmar, available at alokacrafts.com. Any purchase will not only support these artisan communities, but also our nonprofit's wider mission. That's Aloka Crafts, spelled A-L-O-K-A-C-R-A-F-T-S, one word, alokacrafts.com. Thank you so much for your kind consideration and support. Oh, ba, yaranan da, da, yaranan, da, yaranan, da, yaranan, ba, da, ba, 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 yaranan, 